All right, Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 38 today. Glad you're here. Pray, pray that it will be a blessing to you. I would encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bible. We're going to jump right in. There's a lot to go over in this passage. Um, and we, we, we need to really think through it and look at it. Uh, and so we're just going to jump right in uh, to the Word. So Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32, it says this. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. The innocent man Jesus, the eternal and divine son of God, our prophet, priest, and king was condemned to die as a criminal, not just as a criminal, but hung between criminals, one on each side of him. This, this is a horrific event. If there has ever been a, a horrific event, this sets the tone, this sets the bar for what horror really looks like. This miscarriage of justice, the, the, the reality that this man who is innocent is condemned to die. The, the reality is, and we studied it last week, we began to really focus in on it last week as he's condemned and sent to die. He struggles carrying his cross because he is so weary under what he has already been enduring, beaten nearly to death before he gets to the place where he will be crucified. He falls and they, and they grab a guy out of, the, out of the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, and they, they, they require Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross the rest of the way so that Jesus can get to the place to ensure that he dies on this hill under the hand of Rome. This is how desperately they sought to, wanted to kill him. That's how desperately they wanted to carry this out. Rather than just, oh, he's suffered enough. They wanted to ensure he died. Well, Luke doesn't give us a lot of detail surrounding the cross. Four words in English, three in the Greek. There they crucified him. Now, I think this is because, as his first century readers, they would have known that crucifixion was commonplace. They would have already had a picture of what that was in mind. I don't think it's that it didn't matter, that the horror of the situation didn't matter. I don't think it was that, that he didn't think to, to talk about the suffering of our Christ on the cross. I just think it's that everyone knew. The people that he was writing to, Theophilus, understood what it was to, to see a crucifixion. The people that would have read it with Theophilus would have known what a, what a, what a crucifixion looked like. They would have known, they would have had a practical, and, and not a practical, but a real image of what it looked like for a man to be laid on his back across a beam and had his arm stretched out to, to place him uh, uh, as far apart as you could just so that they would hang there and then nailed in place, fixed in place. They would have had that picture in mind when he talked about the crucifixion. They would have had the picture in mind how they would have taken his legs and bent them just enough so that he couldn't stand on them, so that he couldn't support himself on them, but he would be in a squatted position, feet lapped over one another, and a nail driven through his feet. They would have had that picture in mind. They wouldn't have just known what it looked like. They would have known what it sounded like. What it sounded like as the hammer hit that nail, that five to seven inch steel spike, they would have known the sounds of the cross. They would have known what it sounded like when 
the crucified person scourged back, scraped across the rough wood when they raised it into place. And those open wounds, you remember we read about the scourging last week, they're open wounds. Every nerve ending, bare nerve ending, screaming, sending signals of pain. They would have known what the screams of agony sounded like as the full weight of this person's body fell onto those nails, driven at the base of the hand, like, likely at the base of the hand that they would support the weight and onto their feet. They would have known what it looked like. They would have known what it sounded like. Luke didn't need to go into detail for them because they knew firsthand the horror of this scene. Horrific that this king of kings, this innocent man, this prophet and priest, the eternal and divine son of God, three times pronounced innocent by Pilate, condemned to die. But because these first century readers, these first century students, of the scripture would have known what it looked like. Luke spends less time talking to us about the actual crucifixion and more time talking to us about what goes on around, specifically, Jesus' crucifixion. He calls out the people. The people. This is the masses. This is the multitudes. Remember last week as we studied, there was a multitude of people. This is probably the greatest attended death walk in, in all of Jerusalem's history. It wasn't the first death walk. wouldn't be the last death walk. wouldn't be the last people to carry crosses through the streets of Jerusalem so long as Rome was in charge. But it's likely the most attended death walk, the most attended time. There was multitudes of people. That's this massive amount of people gathering around the streets because this was happening at Passover. It wasn't just the citizens of Jerusalem that were watching. It was all those that had come in, that had traveled in from across, uh, across Israel. And not just Israel, where the Jews had been scattered over time. They would all come in to Jerusalem. And here they are gathered around this man, Jesus carrying his cross first and now being hung by these nails. And Luke says there it is, standing by, watching. The Jewish rulers, he says, are scoffing, making fun, mocking him. And remember, these, these men, they, they, had a, they had an agenda. They had a plan in place. They had been conspiring to see Jesus killed, but they were afraid of the people. They were afraid to carry out their plan. This is some moment for them. This is some moment of celebration. And here they are. We've got him. We've got him. We're getting our way. He's dead. He's dying. We're going to be finished with him. He's going to be no problem for us anymore. But that wasn't enough for them. If you're the Christ, save yourself. If you're the son of God as you claim to be, then why don't you save yourself? You've saved others. Save yourself. And the Roman guards are gambling to win his clothes. This is another common practice. The things that were left with the person who was being crucified, the person who's being executed, belonged to the executioners. Well, here at the cross, Jesus has... A tunic. They strip him of it. Just one more way to shame him. He hung there naked. One more way to embarrass, embarrass and humiliate 
<laughs> they stripped him naked and hung him for everybody to see. And they gambled over his clothes. And they're mocking him, joining in with the Jewish rulers. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Challenging him. Oh, he's not coming down. He must not be a king. Isn't that what the sign above him says? I mean, that was Pilate's instruction. Put a sign above his head. Make sure everybody knows why he's dying. You see, Pilate was doing everything he could to distance himself from the death of an innocent man. In three languages, he, he has a sign in, in, put over Jesus' head. The king of the Jews. He died as an insurrectionist, as one who would seek to overthrow Rome. Pilate could go back, hey, why'd you, why'd you kill Jesus? Why'd you crucify Jesus? He's the king of the Jews. He's, he's leading an insurrection. Doesn't matter that he said he was innocent. Doesn't matter that he didn't see it in him. Doesn't matter now. Now the sentence is placed. Now the condemnation is real. And the Jewish guard, or I'm sorry, the Roman guards and the, and the executioners are joining in with the Jewish, the Jewish leaders. If you're the king, save yourself. Where are your armies to save you? Where is your power? Where is your authority? Where are the people? Where are your, your, your people, the people of your kingdom coming to protect you, coming to save you? Why are you not doing anything? You must be no king. They wanted everyone to know what he was condemned for. That's why they listed it in three languages. John, if you, you read the Gospel of John, he's the one that tells us it was three languages, Latin, Aramaic, and Greek. I covered all the basic languages, all the languages that, that that way anyone who passed by, anyone who saw this man hanging on this cross, they would know. We're not reading it today, but just let me go ahead and point out now that as this progresses from people standing by, Jewish rulers scoffing and mocking, Roman guards scoffing and mocking, next week as we study, we'll see that the criminals that hung on either side of him scoffed and mocked. You see this circle of isolation and rejection. Jesus is alone, hanging on the cross, an innocent man condemned to die. And then there's Jesus. He doesn't respond with venom doesn't respond with his mocking of his own kind. He doesn't respond with condemnation and hatred. He doesn't respond in, in the ways that we would naturally knee-jerk reaction respond. When was the last time someone insulted you? Someone, someone said something against you. How, how, what's that knee-jerk gut reaction? What, what is it that we long to do? The, the, first time, the, the last time someone sinned against you or offended you in some way, so, did something towards you in such a way that it, it hurts you. It injured you. What's the knee-jerk reaction? Oh yeah, I'll prove, I'll prove you wrong. I'll show you you're wrong. I am what I say I am. I, I, I am who I say I am. I, I'm going to show you. Not Jesus. He's not shouting back insults. He's not blaming them. You see, Jesus isn't an anti-Semite, and he's not against Rome. In fact, he's hanging there, receiving these, these insults and this ridicule and suffering under this weight because he's for them. 
He longs for them. He wants their good. He has pity and compassion for them. I mean, you consider this. The same pity that motivated him to speak to those women on the road to the cross. When he stumbles and falls and he's, he's suffering and, and they're mourning because they know he's going to die. They're mourning and they're weeping and, and, and they're seeing the weight and the endurance and the, and the suffering. They're seeing his pain and they're weeping and they're mourning and they're feeling sorry for him. He says, don't weep for me. Don't weep for me. With pity and compassion, he looks at them and he's concerned for them. He says, weep for yourselves and for your children. And now that pity, that pity and compassion it compels him. No, no, I'm not going to scream back at them. I'm not going to bring fire down from heaven on them. I'm not going to fight against them. I'm not going to avenge myself. And I'm not going to prove myself to be this man to them. He prays for them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They don't know what they're doing. They are ignorant of what is going on. And he's not calling them stupid. Don't misunderstand. They're uneducated. They got no clue. They're blind to the truth of what's happening. They just do not know. They're standing there in front of him as adults, but they really have minds as children. They just don't know what they're doing. They don't know what mission they are accomplishing. They don't know whose mission they're completing here. They have no idea. They've they got no clue that their murderous conspiracy was being used by the eternal and providential God to, to bring forth his own mission and, and finish his own plan. They have no idea. They have, the, the Jewish rulers have no clue what's going on. They think from their perspective they're getting rid of a problem. And let's just be honest, if, if Jesus isn't the king, if he is not the son of God, if he is really truly working his miracles by the power of the devil, they are doing what they should be doing. If Jesus is what they say he is, he should be sent out according to their law. He should be condemned. He should be crucified. Or not crucified, they would have stoned him in, in, in the law. But he should be executed. That's the perspective. They got no clue that their mission to, to rid themselves of someone that they have rejected is being used of the providential God to bring about something greater. The Roman soldiers have no clue. They're not educated in the scriptures. They have no perspective of Old Testament covenants. They have no understanding of what God is about doing in the world. All they're doing, they're looking at the Jewish leaders. Following suit is stepping in. These people standing around just watching have no clue. They're ignorant to what mission is being accomplished here. Forgive them. They do not know. And they don't know who it is they're killing. See, they don't know that the true identity of this carpenter from Nazareth is that he is, he is Jesus, their Christ that he is the prophet that they had been promised, that he is the true high priest, that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. This, they have no idea that this man born of Joseph 
wasn't really Joseph's son. Not in the truest sense, anyway. They just don't know that Jesus is their Christ. If they had seen that truth, you can be certain they would have been horrified. How could he know that they are so ignorant to this reality? How, how is it so obvious to him that they are ignorant of what they are doing? Well, they, I mean, the easy answer is he's Jesus. I mean, right? He knows. He knows. The truth is you don't have to be Jesus to see their ignorance. You can see their ignorance in the things that they are saying. If you're Christ, save yourself. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. The truth is in the very action, if, if, if he did what they said for him to do, if, they, if, if he followed their instruction, they would, be, they, they would be removing their opportunity for salvation. He is saving them by not saving himself. You see, this is, the, this is the irony and the beauty of this whole situation. This is not some tragic accident. This is not some, some misconceived plan on the part of our God. He had determined to be there. He had chosen to be there. He was certain he needed to be there. Their ignorance demonstrated that they didn't understand that his plan was at work. That they didn't understand the, the, the power and the providence, the sovereignty of a powerful and almighty God who took on flesh and stood among them. They didn't see with their eyes what they should have been able to see. They, I mean, it would be so easy for us to say, well, wait a minute, you know, if I'd have been there and I'd have seen that miracle, I'd have believed him. Yeah, that's easy to say. You see, because the truth is, is that in the things we say and the ways that we act, we often demonstrate we are just as ignorant to the providence and power and majesty of our great God as they were. In the things that they say, their ignorance, their misunderstanding, their lack of knowledge is evident. If Jesus had saved himself, he couldn't have saved anyone else. He couldn't have saved anyone else. He must be numbered among the guilty and so, so that the guilty can be forgiven. Save yourself, they called out. The, 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 but that's the thing, he's saving them. No one looks at the fireman as he's coming towards them to draw them, to pull them out of the fire. No one looks at the fireman and says, go back, save yourself, let me die and burn. Nobody does that. This is exactly what's happening here. This is exactly what they're doing. Save yourself. Oh, save yourself. Mocking him. This is a substitutionary atonement that had to take place. This, is, this isn't a new perspective. The Jewish leaders, the Jewish people should have seen it in the scriptures. They should have understood it. But they were ignorant to it. They had misunderstood it. And they, they looked at the man and they thought, there's no way. We've talked about it. We've referenced this a number of times over the last few, few weeks. Isaiah 53, 12. It's a verse that Jesus specifically applied to himself. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to, be, to death and was numbered with the transgressors. This innocent man hung to die as, as if he was a criminal among other criminals. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
It's, it's the innocent had to be put to death in the place of the guilty so that the guilty could be counted as innocent and given life. That's the core truth of the gospel. It is good news because you and I were dead. You and I were dead. This, no, there's, we're not playing games here. This is not something to be minced. We, we misunderstand the gospel if we just think it's some feel-good message that's meant to, to make us flutter in our hearts. No, this is the very truth of life. We were dead. But because he died, we can be alive. For us to be saved from our sin and God's wrath, Jesus had to die in our place and for our sin to satisfy God's wrath. Look, this is just not some, some isolated passage in some, some isolated prophet, although I don't think you could call Isaiah some isolated prophet, but the Psalm of David, Psalm 22, 16 through 18. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Sounding familiar? I can count all my bones. Remember the scourging? They stare and gloat over me. We just won, they think. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This was always God's plan. This was his mission. And the ignorance of the people becomes evident when they start crying out for him to save himself. They misunderstand what God is doing. Not only would there have been no salvation had Jesus saved himself, there would be no forgiveness. And there would be no prayer for forgiveness. He couldn't have prayed, Father, forgive them. He would have had to pray, Father, forgive me. You see, if Jesus had saved himself off that cross, and it's shocking to even imagine, I don't know if it's even really possible, but if he had decided to step off that cross, he would have been a sinner just like you and I. It was God's plan from the very beginning, from before the foundations of the world. Peter tells us that Jesus had been the chosen one. You see, he would have been a sinner just like you and me. He would have short-circuited the plan of salvation, not just that. He would have been a hypocrite just like the high priests and the, the Jewish leaders that he had already confronted in the temple. Let me just give you an example of this. Luke chapter 6, 27 through 28, Jesus' teaching on the, uh, on the Sermon on the Plain is what we refer to it in the book of Luke. And I know it's a long time ago for us, but, but this is where we've studied. He says, but I say to you who hear... Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If Jesus had gone around teaching things like this and then turned around and sought not to live by them, he'd be no different than the, the high priests and the hypocrites and the Pharisees that, that loaded weights on people and did nothing to enable them to live by them. He would have been the same hypocrites of the high priest and the, and the Jewish leaders that he had been dealing with all week in the temple as they came to him, questioning him, seeking to undermine him, seeking to, in some way to trip him up. You see, if he had been preaching these things and then not living these things, he couldn't have stood in a place to ask the Father to forgive us. He would have had to stand in a place and ask the Father to forgive him. But the thing is, in this act, by not responding to their taunts, their ignorant taunts, 
He is loving his enemy. He is doing good to those who hate him. He is blessing those who curse him. He is praying for those who abuse him. Literally abuse him. Jesus is no hypocrite. He is the true high priest. And had he saved himself to the detriment, to the, to, without considering those who were against him, he would have removed himself from that office, but he didn't. I love the comment from J.C. Ryle in this, in this context, in this perspective. He says, it is worth noting that as soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, as soon as his hands and his feet were nailed to the cross, as soon as the blood was flowing from, 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 from his head and his back, as soon as the, 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 the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. The very first word from the cross is a desire, is a plea for God's forgiveness on those who are attacking him, who are abusing him. Him, who are against him, seeking to love his enemy. Jesus is the true high priest that now intercedes on our behalf. And the ignorance of those surrounding this cross, while it showed, while it was obvious in what they were saying, it didn't change the reality of what he was doing. Another perspective I think we need to understand is if he had saved himself, he couldn't have prayed, Father, forgive me, or Father, forgive them, because forgiveness is freely offered but costly to the one who grants it. You see, we don't think about this as often, or that often, I don't think. We, we are the recipients of this great forgiveness. We're the ones that enjoy the benefits of it, and, and, and we're the ones who have been given it as a gift we don't often think about what it actually costs to make it happen. You see, you think about this. We have two things at odds here. We have two perspectives. There's a demand for justice and a desire for mercy. And in our estimation and in our abilities, there's, there, these two ideas are competing. They, they stand against one another. For example, a criminal goes to court and he, is, he has committed some heinous crime. We'll just, let's just pick it out. Let's call it a rapist. A rapist goes to court. He's obviously guilty. The one who's been raped demands justice. The rapist desires mercy. Don't give me the full weight of the law. Don't let me experience all the problems that could come as a result of my crimes. Don't let me feel the weight and the burden of my sin. And the one standing who's been offended saying, No, that's so dim that diminishes the sin against me. It diminishes the hurt and the pain that the rape has caused. It, 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 it minimizes the reality of what I'm suffering. And in our estimation, in our economy, in the way that we deal horizontally, we are always at odds with this seeking justice, what people deserve, the right thing to be done. And a desire for mercy, relieving what people should get, giving them some relief from the full weight. But in Jesus Christ, these are both perfectly meted out. The justice of God is met as he suffers the pain and the penalty of our sin. Drinking the full, the full cup of God's wrath on behalf of his people. There is no sin, to be just or no sin to be brought against you any longer. There is no wrath for you at all. It is complete mercy now as it comes from the cross because Jesus stands as the great high priest interceding on our behalf. He has taken the wrath. He has stood in the place and from the cross because the wrath is satisfied. Now comes forgiveness that leads to mercy. You see, if Jesus had saved himself, the Father would be unable to do anything but let us deal 
with justice. Because our, our God, our creator God, is a just God. He is a holy God. Sin cannot stand in his presence. It will burn up. It will be, it, it, it will be pushed out. The glory of our God, should a sinner walk into his presence, that glory would consume him because our God is a consuming fire. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus stood in that place and took all of that wrath so that his glory is now beneficial to us. It is a blessing to us. We, in, we, are, we are made better by it. We walk into his presence and instead of feeling the fire of his wrath, we feel the warmth of his glow. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus had saved himself, there would be no forgiveness. There would be no prayer forgiveness because the Father in heaven couldn't forgive. You see, this doesn't just affect these guys standing around the cross. This matters for you and for me. It's as serious, it's as real today as it has ever been. It's not theatrics. It's not a desire to manipulate or coerce. It's just the truth. It's the absolute truth of God. It is His word. And it's His plan. It's His provision. Because Jesus didn't save Himself from the cross, His death empowers the Father's forgiveness of the repentant sinner. His death enables that. His death empowers that. It allows God to remain just and the justifier of the, of, the, of the sinner, right? Like, he is the one who justifies us. He's the one who says, now you're innocent. It's Jesus has walked into the courtroom, and as the gavel has fallen, and he says, guilty, Jesus says, no. I'm guilty. He's innocent. She's innocent. I will take their punishment. Father, forgive them. Now, I had always taken that word them to specifically apply to the soldiers. Until a few years ago, I was blessed with the opportunity to really study these seven sayings of the cross, and I came across this perspective, this understanding that, that this word them probably talks to all of these people surrounding the cross, the people standing by watching. Well, I didn't swing a hammer. the Jewish leaders scoffing and mocking. Well, but he, we didn't think he was, the, we didn't know what we were doing. The Roman soldiers, well, we, we were just following the example of these Jewish leaders. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But maybe that word them should be applied to us as well. Spurgeon, writing on this, and he's written like four or five sermons. He's spoken four or five sermons across this passage, this text. He says, no, there is no word of accusation upon those dear lips. Father, forgive them. Into that pro now, into that pronoun, them, I feel that I can crawl. Can you get in there 
Oh, by a humble faith, appropriate the cross of Christ by trusting in it and get into that big little word, them. I don't know who you've been in your life. An innocent bystander watching the Christ be crucified. There's no such thing. A scoffer, a mocker, whether you're of the people of, of his ethnic people or of those who crucified him in some way, our sin put him there. Can you get in there to that word? Can you crawl into that word then by some humble repentance and faith recognize? Non-Christian person who doesn't believe, who has trusted in your religious effort, who have thought, I can be good enough, I can measure up, I can do enough good things. I go to church every Sunday, I spend, spend time during the week reading my Bible and praying and doing all these righteous and religious things. So did the Pharisees, and he called them hypocrites, and he condemned them. Justice is satisfied in Jesus. His mercy is available to you. Would you repent and believe? Trust in him and him alone. Christian, Christian, would you keep trusting in Christ? Would you keep repenting of your sin? The, the beginning of, of, of our life, our conversion into faith, is not the time we repent and then we move on. It's the beginning of repentance. It's the beginning of a repentant life. It's a repentant life until we get our glorified body, always admitting that we need Jesus, always dependent upon the cross, always trusting that there is enough satisfaction of the wrath of God for every ounce of sin that comes from us, always trusting in Him and Him alone. Trusting that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Would you keep repenting? Would you keep sinning? Or, or keep expressing faith uh, in, in spite of your sin? Please don't keep sinning. That's what happens when you get excited. Keep trusting. Keep repenting of sin. Keep following his example as you live in obedience. Pray for one another. But don't stop at the one another. Love your enemy. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Forgive those who have sinned against you. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not calling for forgiveness in the sense that it automatically brings reconciliation. Forgiveness and repentance bring reconciliation. But you hear Jesus' prayer and his call on his Father. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Doesn't mean that every one of these people at the base of the cross and all these thems that it could be applied to, all the people that it could be applied to, doesn't mean that everybody's going to be saved. You see, there's a reality that for the reconciliation of relationship, for us to be reconciled unto him, there's both faith and repentance that turns us to him so that we can enjoy his forgiveness. But what he's calling on is God, give, develop towards them, present to them an attitude of forgiveness so that when that prodigal turns around and comes home, he doesn't have to come offer his excuse. You meet him on the road and you hug him and you wrap a robe around him and you put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and you call him home to enjoy the blessings of your goodness. Brothers and sisters, he's saying, hey, make it ready for them. Give them forgiveness so that as soon as they turn, your people will know it. Can we not offer an attitude of forgiveness like that? Can we not offer prayers on behalf of each other like that, of those who hurt us, sin against us? So that when the, when the shepherd goes out and finds the lost sheep and he brings it back to the, to the fold, 
we celebrate. Because the one that was lost has been found. The one who is dead is now alive. You see, brothers and sisters, there is plenty of application for the non-Christian, but don't miss this. There is great application for us as believers. Because Jesus didn't save himself from the cross. He empowers us. He empowers all he saves to pray like him. Luke 11, 2 through 4, they went to him asking, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. When you pray, say, Father. How did he start his prayer on the cross? Father. You know why you can call him Father? Because Jesus called him Father. And he brought forgiveness to you so that you could see him and know him as your Father. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And listen, listen, forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And it's not a plan of works of salvation. It's just an understanding that when we've been forgiven, who in the world can we hold something against? How in the world can we not offer that same forgiveness? You see, we've not just been empowered to pray like him because Jesus didn't save himself from the cross. He empowers all he saves to forgive like him. This is the clear expectation presented to us in the cross of the New Testament. It's clearly stated sometimes like in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven, as God in Christ forgave you. Forgive like you've been forgiven I mean, not only should your life be marked by a repentance towards God the Father in Christ Jesus, you should be turning around wearing robes of forgiveness, just allowing that forgiveness to slough off on those people who seek to hurt you, seek to offend you, seek to sin against you. Your life should be as markedly forgiving as the Savior Jesus Christ. And if it's not, if it's not, says there's something you don't understand about his forgiveness. Sometimes it's not as clearly implied. Romans 17, or 12, 17 through 21, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That demands that you're not going out looking for revenge. That demands that you're not seeking vengeance. That demands that you're willing to extend an attitude of forgiveness until repentance comes. So that the relationship can be reconciled. Beloved, never avenge yourself. He goes on, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. The idea is that we're loving those, forgiving those, praying for those that sin against us so that we begin to act good towards them. The difficult thing about the enemy is that person may be the person sitting closest to you at times. It's not somebody that's outside necessarily. These are Christians he's writing to. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Is that not exactly what Jesus is doing as he hangs there on the cross and he pleads with his father for the forgiveness of those who hang him there? Listen, 
in a world that seeks to demonstrate its power and its presence and its own value. We look at forgiveness as something that makes us a doormat and weak. Forgiveness does not diminish the seriousness or the intensity or the severity of the offense against you. It actually emphasizes it. It actually demonstrates that you realize that this hurt is so bad, that this offense is so deep, that it is so wounding, that it is such a difficult thing to deal with, that the only way you can deal with it is bring it to the cross, that you find your justice, that you find your satisfaction, that you find your peace, not with the person, but at the cross. Oh, Father, this hurts. Oh, Father, I'm wounded. Oh, Father, I've been offended. Oh, Father, they've sinned against me. They have hated me. They have attacked me. They have mocked me. They have laughed at me. But I know, I know that it's not greater than what I have done to you. I know, I know that the, that the justice of their actions, the, 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 the sin that they have committed against me is ultimately against you. And I know that that sin is paid for in the cross. And so I'll forgive it. So I'll bring that payment. I'll find the payment in the cross of Christ. And if it's not a brother or sister in Christ, then the cross will ultimately condemn it. And vengeance will be made possible in the wrath of God. And if that doesn't move you then to pity, then let me offer a prayer on your behalf. Father, forgive this ignorant person. They don't know what they're doing. If you can dare stand in the presence of a holy God who has died on your, on your behalf, in your place for your sin, and you can hold sin against some brother or sister, you're simply saying, huh, my, my offense is greater than his. The cross isn't enough for me. I demand satisfaction from you. If you look at someone and they have sinned against you and they offended you and they are not a Christian, then you might as well be saying, oh, oh no, 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 it's God's wrath plus mine that matters. If you can sit in this room and you can think on a Christ who hung on a cross in this horrific event and you can hold some grudge or hold some wrath against some person, let me pray for you. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Here's the beauty. There is forgiveness for your unforgiveness. Even that is satisfied in the cross. Would you repent and believe? He has been so good to us. How can we do anything but be good to others? Let's pray. Father, forgive me for my ignorance, for the sins that I've committed not knowing that I've committed them, out of my blindness, out of my limited, self-centered perspective, 
Help me to apply your forgiveness so fully that it flows through me. Would you do that for my brothers and sisters in this room? I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.